recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Gania on Talk Show. Thank you for listening. And praise Yahweh. Tonight I'm, home, I'm at the home of Pastor Mark Downey from KingsonRedeemer.org. He's been, him and his wife have been very gracious hosts, and, and I will be doing a program tomorrow night with Mark, and we're going to talk about Roman Catholicism. Today we lament the passing of our sister, Cheryl Watt, whom only this past Wednesday Yahweh relieved of her worldly struggles. May she find peace with our Father in heaven. Tonight I'm going to present the Gospel of Luke. Chapter 2. Over the last two weeks, we elucidated the exclusivity of Luke's Gospel. We'll do more of that tonight. We also showed that Luke's Gospel was indeed the Gospel of Paul as well. This must be remembered wherever Paul's epistles are considered. We also saw that claims of the scoffers, those who say that a virgin birth occurred in many ancient religions long before the time of the Hebrew promise of such a thing, and furthermore that Christianity had borrowed the idea those claims are fully discredited by any serious and honest scholarship. Among other things, one more important aspect of Luke's Gospel that was attested here last week is how the accounts in Luke of the promises for the people of Israel, which were being fulfilled in Christ, actually fit in perfectly with the teachings of Paul in his epistles, which were all written to disperse Israelites. This will be the primary subject of the talk I shall give this Sunday. At the Fellowship of God's Covenant People here in Kentucky with Pastor Don Elmore, and I look forward to that. With that, I will present Luke chapter 1. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 2, verse 1. And it happened in those days that there came out a decree from Caesar, Augustus, to register the whole inhabited world. Caesar Augustus here is Gaius Octavius a nephew of Julius Caesar who adopted him, making him his heir. With that adoption, he became Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. He ruled Rome as part of a triumvirate from 43 BC, which ended in civil war with Mark Antony, Marcus Antonius, 
culminating at the Battle of Actium in 31 BC. From 27 BC, Octavian was the sole emperor of Rome and adopted the title Augustus, by which he is popularly known as Augustus Caesar. Subsequent emperors also adopted the name Caesar as a title, which was actually Julius Caesar's personal name. Julius was his family name. Roman names being a little different than what we're accustomed to. And they also, the subsequent emperors, also adopted the use of Augustus as a title. And that's seen later in the New Testament, where its Greek equivalent, Sebastus, is used to refer to Nero Caesar, who was Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, in Acts chapters 25 and 27. The word oikumene is simply translated world in the King James Version of the Bible. Here it is rendered the inhabited world, meaning that portion of the world or planet which was occupied by Greco-Roman society, which is the cosmos, and we shall see that. The Romans surely did not register or take taxes from the aboriginal races of Africa or Asia. There was no tax collection amongst the squat monsters, and so we have a clear example of the limited meaning of the word as it is used in the Bible, and it is exclusive of the territories inhabited primarily by the alien races. Strabo, the famous geographer of the first century, described the oikumene of his own time in depth, and he confined it to Europe, the Near East, and the white northern part of Africa. Strabo's oikumene went from the Pillars of Hercules to the Indus River, included the Russian steppes and Northern Africa and Egypt and the Middle East, and that was it. That was the Oikumene, and Strabo knew. He knew of strange lands. He knew of strange peoples beyond the bounds of this Oikumene, but he did not count those lands and those peoples as a part of the Greco-Roman Oikumene, the living space of the white race, as he described it. If they weren't a part of his oikumene, neither can they be considered a part of his cosmos. Aside from the word oikumene, there are two other words in the Greek New Testament translated as world in most modern Bibles. The word ahion, Strong's number 165, from which we get the English word eon, is temporal. It's not spatial. It describes an age, a long but indeterminate period of time. The word cosmos, Strong's number 2889. Cosmos is order. It's decency. It's the form or fashion of a thing. Of states, it means order or government. It can mean an ornament, a decoration, an embellishment, a dress. That's according to the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon. The corresponding verb, cosmeo, is, and I quote Liddell and Scott again, 
to order, to arrange, to dispose, to rule or to govern, to deck or to adorn, to furnish or to equip or to embellish. It is evident that if the Greeks had the word oikumene to describe their physical world, then the cosmos was the arrangement of that world. And therefore, cosmos is properly, but not always necessarily, translated as society. It is also evident, since Aristotle and other Greek writers describe, the Greeks considered the oikumene to be only that part of the planet which they inhabited, and that they knew of lands and tribes outside of that part of the planet, neither the oikumene nor the cosmos could ever be imagined to include the alien non-white races in the biblical or classical context. We can see that same idea in Daniel chapter 2. where Daniel is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the beast vision. And he says, and I quote from verse 38, And wheresoever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heaven, has he given into thine hand, and has made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold, and after thee shall arise another kingdom inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of brass, which shall bear rule over all the earth, and the fourth kingdom over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and as iron that breaks all these, shall it break in pieces and bruise. The beast empires of biblical prophecy ruled over practically all of the white world, all of the white people of the planet wheresoever the children of men dwell, and only ruled over non-white races where the Tares, the descendants of Cain and Canaan and Esau, and the small portion of mixed-race peoples who already happened to be involved, and that did happen in later Egypt and in Arabia. The few exceptions do not make the rule, the oikumene of the Greeks, and the all the earth of the Hebrews referred only to the white part of this planet and not to any of the aliens or the alien lands. Although, of course, there were always tares among the wheat. Here are just some of the other uses of the word oikumene in the New Testament. Matthew 24:14. And this good message of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole inhabited earth, the whole oikumene, for a testimony to all the nations, and then shall the end come. Luke 4, 5. And bringing him up, he showed him all of the kingdoms of the inhabited earth, all the kingdoms of the oikumene. I don't think since they were on a high mountain, according to the scripture, in Matthew, that they saw China. I don't think they saw the squat monsters in South America or Mexico or Africa 
south of the Sudan, south of the Sahara. He showed him all the kingdoms of the inhabited earth in a moment of time. Then the devil said to him, I will give you the authority over all this and their honor because to me it was delivered and to whomever I wish I could give it. Acts 11.28. And then there arose one of them named Hagabus who indicated through the spirit that the great famine is going to come upon the whole inhabited world, the whole Loikumene, which happened in the time of Claudius, the emperor. Claudius Caesar. Acts 17.6. And not finding them, they dragged Jason and some brethren before the rulers of the city, crying that they who have been upsetting the inhabited world, the Oikumene, are also come here, talking about Paul and his Christian brothers. They were upsetting the whole Oikumene. They weren't preaching the gospel in China or to Negroes, but they were upsetting the Oikumene. Romans 10.18, but I say, have they not heard? Yeah, rather, into all the land without their voice, and to the western extremities, which in the King James is simply the ends, but I have a historical reason for that translation, which can be traced back to the time of Homer, and to the western extremities of the habitable world, their words, to the ends of the Oikumene, their words already went according to Romans 10.18, according to Paul, Hebrews 1.6. Then again, when he introduces the firstborn into the inhabited world, into the Oikumene, he says, and all the messengers of Yahweh must worship him. Revelation 3.10, because you have kept my word with patience, I shall also keep you from the hour of trial, about to come upon the whole oikumene, the whole inhabited earth, to twist, to test those dwelling upon the earth, to test in context the children of Israel and nobody else. Revelation 12:9, and the great dragon had been cast down, that serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, he who deceives the whole inhabited earth. He who deceives the whole oikumene. I don't think the squat monsters really care about what the Jews are saying. They simply want to fill their bellies. Revelation 12, 9. And the great dragon had been cast down, that serpent of old who is called... I'm sorry. I read that. Revelation 16, 14. For they are the spirits of demons making signs which go out to the kings of the whole inhabited earth to gather them to the battle of the great day of Yahweh the Almighty. The Oikumene is the white Adamic part of the world, the dwelling place of men. That is the concern of Scripture. Anybody else that gets caught up in that is simply collateral to the story. They are simply peripheral to the story of the gospel. They really don't matter in the eyes of the Bible and in the context of Scripture. The Oikumene is the white Adamic part of the world. That's the concern of Scripture. The cosmos is the adornment of the Oikumene. 
It is the order and government of the oikumene. That's the definition of the word. We properly call it society. The scope of the biblical story does not change with time. The biblical concern is not extended to aliens simply because the white man has enlarged his own boundaries. Because the white man has enlarged his own boundaries doesn't mean that the aliens should be included in the white man's story. Luke chapter 2, verse 2. The first registration happened while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Quirinius, the Roman Sulpicius Quirinius, is recorded as being governor of Syria in 67 AD. And he most certainly had an earlier tenure, as Luke tells us here, in 3 BC or thereabouts. Although this has not been verified in the fragmentary records of the period, it is generally not known among secular historians just who the Roman governors of Syria were from 4 BC through 1 BC. The office was typically held for two years, and often its holders were reappointed to additional terms. And we see that with Pilate. He was the procurator of Judea for, for maybe 10 years. It was for quite some time. Because of this lapse in the records which we have available, because we don't know who the Roman governors of Syria were in the terms 4 to 3 BC and 2 to 1 BC, there is dispute over Luke and the time of Christ's birth. Accepting the biblical record, one should be persuaded that Sulpicius Quirinius was the governor of Syria during this period also, at least during the years 4 and 3 BC. There are records of Quirinius' presence in Syria in various capacities before 4 BC. The year 3 BC would be Augustus' 25th anniversary as emperor. And it would also be the 750th anniversary of that year, which is traditionally recognized by the Romans as the year in which the city was founded, which is, by all the popular chronologies, 753 B.C. There is archaeological evidence from Paphlagonia and Armenia that an oath of allegiance to the emperor was required along with a registration at this very time. Not a tax, a registration. From his own words in the rest, Geste Divi Augusti, which means the deeds of the divine Augustus, which was Augustus's own funerary inscription penned in his own hand. It was a sort of abbreviated autobiography. Augustus wrote that in 2 BC, he was granted the title Father of My Country by the Senate and the Equestrian Order and the entire Roman people, which seems to have been the primary purpose of this very registration. 
The registration most likely began in 3 BC when Joseph and Mary were registered in Bethlehem and completed in early 2 BC at the latest in time for the emperor's anniversary festivities. Many commentators insist that Christ was born before or during 4 BC, which is impossible considering Luke chapter 3 verse 1 and Luke chapter 3 verse 23, where we find Luke's own comments concerning the age of Christ being, as he says, about 30 years old in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, which has to be near the fall of 28 AD. The commentators who place the birth of Christ back to before 4 BC do so because Herod was alive for some time after Christ's birth, as it is evident in Matthew chapter 2, and the historian Josephus places Herod's death near an eclipse of the moon. One eclipse is known to have occurred through astronomical calculations in March of 4 BC. And they assume that this is the eclipse which Josephus mentions. Yet, there was another eclipse which seems not to be mentioned by the commentators, which occurred on the 10th of January in 1 BC. This later eclipse is a much more likely candidate by which to mark Herod's death. While its author, the author of this, this um, book, The Birth of Christ Recalculated, Ernest L. Martin is, a, is just another mainstream dispensationalist his calculation of the birth of Christ is a very thorough argument in favor of the January 10th 1 BC eclipse as being the eclipse that marked Herod's death. There's an online article explaining this, and, and it's available, and it's entitled The Lunar Eclipse of Josephus, and it's at askelm.com, A-S-K-E-L-M, askelm.com it's most likely that Luke and, and the commentators, the biblical commentators are all arrogant enough to accuse Luke of being wrong, but it's very probable that Herod died in 1 BC and not in 4 BC, that Christ was born in 3 BC, and therefore he was about 30 years old when he stood in the Jordan to be baptized in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, there being no year zero on the calendar from 3 BC in the fall to 28 AD in the fall is 30 years. Luke 2, verse 3, and all had gone to be registered, each to his own city, just to demonstrate once again some of the differences amongst the manuscripts, the Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text have each to his own city. The Codex Ephraim Siri has each to his own land. The Codex Bazai has each to his fatherland. 
and the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Washingtonensis have each to his city. Verse 4. So then Joseph went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to a city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because of his being of the house and family of David. You know, we see the phrase, went up to Jerusalem, or went down to Galilee, quite often in the scripture. It's a common illustration in the New Testament. In modern times, Americans usually go up north, or we go down south, because that's the way we orientate our maps, right? The word here is anabahino. It actually means to go up. The Greeks went up in altitude. They went up to go inland from the sea. That's why we see so many times in the New Testament it says to go up to Jerusalem, because it was a city high in elevation. They went down in altitude or when traveling to the sea, which is why Christ went down to Galilee from Judea and went up to Jerusalem from wherever. A famous story in, 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 in from the noun form of the same word is Xenophon's the Anabasis, which is often translated the march inland. That's just a historical note and, and the way the Greeks used the word I thought that should be of interest. From the house and family of David, ex oiku kahi patrias, the house and family of David. Being of the house of David seems to me to be no, a right to the inheritance of what belonged to David in line with or in the absence of other heirs. That's evident in Scripture in Genesis chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, what, where we would see Eleazar would inherit. He was of the house of Abraham, so Abraham wanted to adopt him as a son and make him his heir, and that would make him of the house and family of Abraham. It's also evident in 2 Samuel 3.10. Being of the family of David ensures us that Joseph actually descended from David. So the terms are not redundant. One seems to indicate the inheritance. The other seems to indicate the lineage of pedigree by the father's side, which is what patria means. Patria occurs elsewhere in the New Testament only in Acts 3.25 and Ephesians 3.15, where Acts 3.25, I believe, is the verse that says all the families of the earth will be blessed. That word is patria in the New Testament. Now, this may also, and, and I'll talk about this at length next week here when, when, I, produce, when I present Luke chapter 3, this may also be the reason for two separate genealogies in Matthew and in Luke, and that shall be discussed next week. It can't be told with certainty, but we see that Joseph was of the house and the family of David. He was of the race and lineage of David, and he had a right to the inheritance, meaning of his house. Verse 5, to be registered with Mariam, who was promised in marriage to him, she being pregnant. And it happened to them, while being there, 
that the days of which he was to bear had been fulfilled. <clears throat> the Codex Alexandrinus and the majority text which the King James is based upon have promised in marriage to him for a wife. The verb, menestuo, promised in marriage, was discussed here at length two weeks ago, discussing Luke 127. There it was explained that both betrothed and engaged are plausible alternatives, they're, that they're also legitimate translations of the word. Here again we see that Luke stresses the fact that Joseph is not the natural father of the baby which Marion carries. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and swathed him and laid him in a feeding trough, since there was not a place for them at the inn. Only in the 5th century Codex Washingtonensis do we want the word which is rendered firstborn in this passage. The word firstborn appears in all the other manuscripts, all the other ancient manuscripts where this verse is attested, that Luke would go out of his way to explain that Yahshua was Miriam's firstborn son and not simply her son, elucidates the fact, as it has often been presented here, that Miriam indeed had other children later on in life. And we see James and Joseph and Jude, who were called the brethren of the Lord in the King James Version. And we see a couple of daughters are also mentioned in the company of Mary and as the sisters of Christ several times in later scriptures. I'll quote Matthew 12, verses 46 to 47, and this account is also supplied by Luke and by Mark. Yet, while he spoke to the crowds, behold, his mother and his brethren stood outside speak, seeking to speak with him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brethren stand outside seeking to speak with you. Since not one, but at least several of these children James and Joseph and Jude and the sisters of Christ were still accompanying their mother in her travels when Christ was already over 30 years of age. It is evident that they were somewhat younger than Christ and therefore Mary or Mariam must have had children later on in life. This is her firstborn son. Mariam laid him in a feeding trough, the word fat day. The word means a manger, a crib, or literally a feeding trough. And certainly not as we use the word crib today in reference to an infant's bed, although I'm sure that the idea is related. A crib in this sense is a rack or trough for fodder from which animals are fed, a manger. That's the definition of the word manger. While manger is a kinder word than feeding trough, it loses the prophetic impact which this event foretold. 
as four-legged sheep eat their grain from a feeding trough, Christ is the bread of life for his own sheep, as he himself explains in John chapter 6. The sheep have life by eating out of that trough. Chapter 2, verse 8. And there were shepherds in that area, dwelling in the field, and keeping a watch by night over their sheep. And a messenger of Yahweh stood over them, and the effulgence of Yahweh shone about them, and they feared a great fear. Then the messenger said to them, Do not fear, for behold, I bring to you a message of great joy, which is for all the people, not all peoples, which is for all the people, that today there has been born to you a Savior, who is the anointed prince in the city of David. And this is a sign for you. You shall find an infant swathed and lying in a feeding trough. The word Christos is usually Christ. Primarily, the word is a Greek adjective, which means anointed. Therefore, here it is, the anointed prince. The Christogenian New Testament usually renders the word kurios, where it's a title for Christ as prince rather than as lord. He's the anointed lord. Christos is being used as an adjective here in its natural form. On the surface, the accounts of Luke and Matthew are strikingly different accounts of the circumstances surrounding the birth of Christ. However, upon inspection, actually reading the scripture, they by no means conflict with one another. Matthew's account is centered on the Magi. Chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel opens in this manner. Now Yahshua, being born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arose in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he, having been born the king of the Judeans? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. After the Magi see the Christ child, Matthew 2.11, only then does Joseph go to Egypt, described at Matthew 2. Verses 13 and 14. The misconception is that the Magi appeared on or immediately after the night of Christ's birth. But Matthew never explicitly tells us how long it had been between the birth of Christ and the appearance of the Magi. In Matthew 2.11, Joseph and Mary are already staying in the house. Here we see that Joseph and Mary had Christ birthed in a stall because there was no room at the inn. They didn't have a house. In Matthew 2.11, when the Magi show up, they had a house. They did not have that house at the birth of Christ. And therefore, when the Magi showed up, the child was no longer in a manger. He was in a house. It may have been several months or even many months from the birth of Christ to the time when the Magi appeared in Jerusalem. One thing is certain, 
the Magi never saw the manger. But these shepherds, being described here by Luke, certainly did. At Matthew chapter 2, verse 7, it is seen that Herodotus, Herod, calling the Magi secretly, exacted precisely from them the time of the appearance of the star. It must have taken the Magi quite some time <laughs> after seeing the star to prepare for the trip that they had to take once they saw the star, especially since they most likely came all the way from Parthia. The Magi were priesthood found primarily among the Persians, the Medes, and the Parthians. Babylon, one of the closest of the major ancient cities in Parthia, was 500 miles from Jerusalem, 500 miles across the desert. That's as the crow flies. Most of Parthia was much further away than that. Therefore, Herodotus, and I'm back to quoting Matthew 2.16, Herodotus, seeing that he had been mocked by the Magi, had been exceedingly angered, and sending, he slew all the children who were in Bethlehem, in all of its borders, from two years and below, according to the time which he exacted from the Magi. So the Magi must have estimated that the Christ child was possibly as old as two years when they came to Jerusalem. Luke's account of the birth of Christ ends at the beginning of the second month of his life in the temple at Jerusalem. That's fully evident in Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24. And we will cover that tonight. Aside from the words of Simeon and Anna, which were spoken in the temple at that time, and which Luke recorded, there was nothing extraordinary about the appearance in the temple of the infant Christ which should have attracted any attention. The presentation and the circumcision of the newborn infant at the temple was an ordinary event. Therefore, and it's demanded by the law, therefore, the account of these events found in Luke concerning the birth of Christ easily took place in the interim between his birth and the appearance of the Magi, the first 33 or 34 days of his life, long before the Magi appeared in Jerusalem, which may have been many months later. These accounts of Matthew and Luke do not conflict, and they do not even overlap one another. Luke 2.13 and suddenly, there were with the messenger a multitude of the heavenly army, praising Yahweh and saying, Honor to Yahweh in the heights, and peace upon the earth among approved men. The King James Version ends this verse with the words, And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. A reading of the Greek, which does not exist in any manuscript from before the 6th century, but which is found in the majority text 
upon which the King James Version is based. That edition has the word eudokia, 2107. In the nominative case, and it may also be read, and peace upon the earth, goodwill among men. The text of the Christogenian New Testament follows the original readings of the codices, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, Washingtonensis, and other manuscripts older than the, King James, the text upon which the King James is based. And they all have eudokias, which is the genitive case. And it means, and it makes the phrase to mean and peace upon the earth among approved men, which may also have been written, and peace upon the earth among men of approval. Other versions have realized this error, such as the American Standard Version and the NAS, the New American Standard Version, I believe that stands for, and these other versions have offered translations that treat the noun eudokius as a verb. So they compound the mistake. They don't correct the King James. They make it worse. And on earth peace among men whom he, with whom he is well pleased. The sense of that is better than the King James, but it's still not a very good translation. It's peace upon earth among approved men. Yahweh, our God, wishes peace upon earth to those men whom he approves. He doesn't care for peace for those men among whom he does not approve. Verse 15, and it happened. As the messengers departed from them into the heaven, the shepherds had said to each other, Indeed, we should pass through unto Bethlehem and see this account which happened, which Yahweh has made known to us. And being eager, they went and discovered both Mariam and Joseph and the infant lying in a feeding trough. And seeing it, they made known concerning the account which had been spoken to them about this child. And all of those hearing wondered concerning the things being spoken to them by the shepherds. And Mariam kept together all of these words, collecting them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, honoring and praising Yahweh, for which they heard and saw, for all which they heard and saw, just as it had been spoken to them. Here we see Marion kept together all of these words, collecting them in her heart. Here Luke tells us inexplicitly just how he had managed to acquire these accounts in order to write them so intimately. For they were passed down directly from Marion herself. This event with the shepherds happened in the first week of the life of Christ, which is readily evident as Luke's account proceeds, with verse 21. And when the eight days were fulfilled, for which to circumcise him, then his name was called Yahshua, which he had been called by the messenger before his conception in the womb. 
At Luke 131, the angel says to Miriam, Now behold, you shall conceive in the womb, and you shall beget a son, and you shall call his name Yahshua, or in the Greek, Jesus. In chapter 1 of Luke, concerning the birth of John the Baptist, we read, And it happened upon the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they called him by the name of his father, Zechariah. And replying, his mother said, No, rather he shall be called John. Therefore the custom is apparent that a male child was named upon his circumcision. We see it with John the Baptist and with Joshua Christ. Verse 22. And when the days of their purification were fulfilled, According to the law of Moses, they brought him into Jerusalem to stand before Yahweh, just as it is written in the law of Yahweh, that every male opening the womb shall be called holy to Yahweh, and to give an offering. According to that spoken in the law of Yahweh, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons that every male opening the womb, every firstborn male, is sacred to God, paraphrases Exodus chapter 13, verses 2, 12, and 15. The duration of the mother's purification, during which she was separated from normal social intercourse, was 33 days after the child's circumcision. In addition to the seven days prior to the circumcision, for which see Leviticus chapter 12. For reasons that can only be conjectured, the duration of this purification is twice as long when the infant is a female. And we see that in Leviticus 12.5. Aside from illustrating the customs which occurred here in the law, Leviticus chapter 12 also shows, in verse 8 of that chapter, that Joseph and Mary were indigent, since upon the birth of their son, they sacrificed two doves and not a dove and a lamb, which would be much more expensive. Verse 1 of Leviticus 12, and I quote, And the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, if a woman has conceived seed and born a man-child, then she shall be unclean seven days according to the days of the separation. For her infirmity shall she be unclean. And in the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days, thirty-three days, she shall touch no hollow thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. But if she shall bear a maid child, a girl, then she shall be unclean two weeks as in her separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying three score and six days. And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son, or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering, 
and the young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering under the door of the tabernacle of the congregation unto the priest, who shall offer it before the Lord and make an atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the issue of her blood. So she's cleansed from the issue of her blood by a sacrifice. We'll see the import of that soon. This is the law for her that has born a male or a female. And if she be not able to bring a lamb, as Miriam and Joseph were evidently not able to bring a man, then, as Luke quoted, she shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for the burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for her, and she shall be clean. The ancient Greeks had the same custom of a woman remaining separate due to impurity after childbirth, although the time was far reduced. The pagan Greeks just couldn't wait that long. David Kovacs translates Euripides, Electra, line 654, and here are the words of the title character. It's rather short. Ten days ago, the time a woman who has given birth keeps pure. A footnote in the low classical library edition states, in the Greek view, like death, birth produces a taint, and the woman abstains from intercourse with her husband to avoid passing it on. After 10 days, she, she is ritually purified by a sacrifice. We see that same custom in the Hebrew Old Testament. Imagine that, Hebrew custom seen among the Greeks. I raise that point only to demonstrate that Greek culture was also Hebrew culture, and it originated with the Hebrews. Luke 2, verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, expecting the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it was forewarned to him by the Spirit not to see death before he should see the anointed prince. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And in there, being introduced to the parents of the child, Yahshua, upon their doing that which is according to the custom of the law concerning him, then he took him into his arms and praised Yahweh and said, Now release your servant, Master, in peace, according to your word. Simeon was very old and had been promised to live until this time, and now he could die in peace, on which account he spoke the words, Now release your servant, O Master. Simeon was expecting the consolation of Israel. That word is paraclesis. That's the word from which we get paraclete. The word may also be rendered comfort. Isaiah 51.3 from the King James. For Yahweh shall comfort Zion. Hebrews 6.18. Paul 
Paul of Tarsus, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which is in Christ. Verse 30, quoting the elderly Simeon, because my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in front of all the people, in front of all the people, the words, the genitive plural form of laos with the article, are, according to Liddell and Scott, the people, whether they are in the singular or in the plural. Sir Francis Brenton nevertheless writes peoples in his Septuagint translation for these words. The King James Version has people here. Thayer makes no definite comment on the use of the article which the King James ignores. But Thayer says, the plural seems to be used of the tribes of the people, giving Genesis 49.10, Deuteronomy 32.8, and Isaiah 3.13, and Acts 4.27 all as examples. Contextually, within the context of the scripture, all of the tribes of the people of Israel is the apparent reference here, though they be many nations at this time. However, if the phrase is to be understood as the King James has it, that's also a fair understanding in the light of Psalm 98, verse 2, and several passages in Isaiah. 98.2 from the Septuagint. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of all nations. Of the nations, I'm sorry. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 5. And the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. Isaiah 52, 10. And we see Mary in her response to the announcement of the birth of the Christ child, which she was to bear. She made reference to this also. Yahweh has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, even if you wanted to include non-Adamic so-called people in that, just because they shall see the salvation of our God, doesn't make them recipients of that salvation. We learn that in the next verse, verse 32. A light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. The phrase, bos, I, sapo, and that's known. That's the Greek. Here is a light for the revelation of the nations. It may have been rendered a light for a revelation of the nations. The word apocalypsis is a noun. It means an uncovering, a revelation. It's Strong's number 602. It's the same word which supplies the alternate name for the book of Revelation in our Bible, which is called the Apocalypse. The King James Version renders this phrase 
a light to lighten the Gentiles. They make that they take that word apokalupsis, which is a noun, and they make it a verb, which is both impossible and inexcusable. Furthermore, the King James rendering would require that the noun for nations be in the accusative case to be a direct object of a non-existence ver- of a non-existent verb, which it is not. The verb does not exist. Paul defines the faith which Abraham had as being the belief in the promise of Yahweh that his offspring would become many nations in Romans chapter 4. Here we see that it is the light of the gospel which would make those nations manifest. And certainly it did. Once the people of Europe became known collectively as Christendom. This wonderful truth of the Christian Israel fulfillment of Scripture is therefore hidden in the mistranslations of the King James Version and most other Bibles. While some versions attempt to correct the King James Version's plain grammatical error here, not having any understanding, they twist other parts of the statement. For instance, the NAS translates this passage, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. But the preposition ice and the accusative case mean for a revelation, where the NAS rendering would require the preposition ek and the genitive form of the noun. The ASV rendering is just as treacherous. In the ASV, the phrase is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That rendering would require that the word ethnon, which is the genitive case of the word for nations, instead be in the dated case, the plural ethnation. Here we have the article and the word for nations being in the genitive form. It means of the nations. It doesn't mean anything else. The preposition ice being for or two, here, combined with a noun, it's a light for a revelation of the nations. That is the only legitimate reading of this phrase. There is no other legitimate reading of the Greek. The ASV and the NAS while they correct the King James's use of a verb, use of a noun as a verb, which is just incredibly irresponsible, they twist the case and they twist the meanings of the preposition and, and the case of the noun so that they still can Judaize and universalize the passage. It's a light for a revelation. Let's read verse 32 once more. A light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. Although it's not probably a hendiotis, a hendiotis is a grammatical construction 
that employs a definite article and different nouns that definitely refer to the same entity. Neither do we have here any construction which would distinguish these entities being the honor and the nations of Israel. The nations and the honor here are certainly both belonging to your people Israel, meaning the Israel of God in the Old Testament. The Israelites were prophesied to leave Palestine at an early time, Genesis 28:14, speaking of the seed of Abraham. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families, those patriarchy, the, the clan members of Genesis chapter 10, shall all the families of the earth be blessed. These things certainly happen. as it is revealed by a study of ancient history. The Israelites were prophesied to leave Palestine in Genesis chapter 35, 11, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10, in 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 9. A study of ancient history reveals that many of the Greeks, the Romans, the Trojans, the Phoenicians, and other peoples of Europe descended from Israelites migrating out of Palestine long before the Assyrian deportations, and that the Parthians, the Scythians, the Chimerians, and the peoples, the peoples that became the Germanic tribes all descended from the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations, along with certain Japhethite tribes, for example, the Ionians, whom Paul addresses in Acts chapter 17, they were Japhethites, the Ionians of Athens. These Israelites make up the population of Europe by the time of Christ. They are the white Europeans, as opposed to the later Arab and Turkic invaders. They are the white Europeans of today. To those people did the apostles bear the light of the gospel. To those people do we see the fulfillment of the promises when they became known as Christendom? They fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies which concerned the true Israelites and not the Jews. Micah chapter 7. Therefore, I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not against me, O mine enemy, when I fall. I shall arise when I sit in darkness. Yahweh shall be a light unto me. I will bear the indignation of Yahweh, because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me forth to the light and I shall behold his righteousness. Isaiah chapter 51. For Yahweh shall comfort Zion. He shall comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden 
of Yahweh. Joy and gladness shall be found therein. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear unto me, O my nation, for Allah shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. We see that same phraseology used here in Luke. My righteousness is near, my salvation has gone forth, and mine arms shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me, and on mine arm shall they trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look upon the earth beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth, which we see quoted later in Paul in Hebrews, shall wax old like a garment. And they that, they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. But my salvation shall be forever and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Of course, Christ himself is the light which made the nations and the glory of Israel manifest. John chapter 1 explains that Christ was the light coming to the world. And in John 8, 12, Christ exclaims, I am the light of the society. He following me, shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Again, we see that Luke is the Christian identity gospel. Since while all of the gospels are important, Luke preserves for us the very purpose of the gospel better than any of the others. Luke chapter 1 informs us that through the fulfillment of the promises, speaking of God, and I quote from verse 54, he has come to the aid of his servant Israel to call mercy into remembrance, just as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Later in Luke chapter 1, we have spelled out for us by Zacharias the very purpose of the coming of Christ. And I quote from verse 68, Blessed is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that he has visited and brought about redemption for his people and has raised a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, just as he spoke through the mouths of his holy prophets from of old, preservation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us to bring about mercy with our fathers and to call into remembrance his holy covenant the oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, which is given to us if we're children of Israel, being delivered fearlessly from the hands of our enemies to serve him in piety and in righteousness before him for all of our days. Now here we see in Luke chapter 2, these same Old Testament promises to Israel reiterated in the words, of Simeon, because my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in front of all the people, a light for the revelation of the nations and honor of your people Israel. Luke's gospel was also Paul's gospel, and those who would despise it would cast away these assurances of absolute 
Israelite exclusivity and the proofs of Israel identity found in our scriptures. Those who would despise it cast aside the links in scripture between the ancient Hebrews and the Aryan people of God. For no writings in scripture reveal these things to the same extent as Luke and Paul reveal them. Luke 2.33, and his mother and father were wondering at the things being spoken concerning him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary and his mother, Behold, he is set for a fall and a restoration of many in Israel, and for a sign speaking in opposition. But a sword shall pass through your own soul also, that the reasonings of the hearts of many should be revealed. Simeon reveals the travails that Miriam herself would undergo on account of her son. Christ was set for a fall and a restoration of many in Israel. Those who ignored or rejected him and sided with his enemies would fall. And all of those who should eventually accept him would be restored. He is set for a fall and a restoration of many in Israel. From John chapter 12, after a discourse between Christ and the leaders of Jerusalem, we see, and I quote from verse 42, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. How many people does that describe today? This is the meaning of the illustration which Paul makes in Romans chapter 11. Paul is not speaking of the cursed Edomites, whom he already tells us in Romans chapter 9, are the children of Esau and the vessels of destruction. Rather, Paul is only talking about the children of Jacob. He's only talking about the vessels of mercy, where it is allegory of the olive trees. He discusses the breaking off of natural branches and the grafting on of branches from a wild olive tree. And here I'll quote from Romans chapter 11 with some comments, starting at verse 11. Now I say, Paul is speaking allegorically, did they stumble in order that they would fall, meaning the true Israelites in Judea? Certainly not. Why does he say certainly not? Because all Israel shall be saved. Paul goes on. But in their fall is preservation to the nations. And Paul says that. Because without the crucifixion of Christ, there is no reconciliation for Israel. Without the crucifixion of Christ, the law of divorce is not fulfilled. Paul goes on to the provocation of them to jealousy. And I would interject that since they do not understand the dispersions of Israel and the mercy that the people of the dispersions are to receive, 
but rather because they sought to justify themselves by the law, they would be provoked to jealousy. Paul goes on to say, but if their fall is the wealth of the society, and if their defeat is the wealth of the nations, meaning restoration for all of Israel, how much more their fullness, because they too shall be granted mercy. Indeed, I speak to you, the nations, in other words, the nations of Abraham, which is evident in Paul's discourses in many other places, because I am an ambassador of the nations, meaning the dispersed Israel nation, I honor my office. If possibly, I would provoke to jealousy my kinsmen and preserve from some from among them. And Paul already told us in Romans chapter 9 that he only cares for his kinsmen according to the flesh, the true Israelites in Judea. Verse 15 of Romans 11, Indeed, if the disposal of them is the reconciliation of the society, what would the acceptance be if not life from among the dead, that they too would be preserved? Now, if the first fruit is sacred, the earliest Christians, then also the balance. And if the root is sacred, then also the branches. As Isaiah says, and as it's told in many other places in the New Testament, it's the whole seed of Israel that must be holy. But if some of the branches have been broken off, and you, being of a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, having become a partaker of the richness of the root of the olive tree, you must not exult over the branches, but if you exult, you will not sustain the root, nor the root you. In all of Paul's letters, only the Romans are likened to the wild olive tree. Only the Romans... Only of the Romans does he make this analogy. The Romans were Israelites. Their ancestors departed from the main body in Egypt before Israel received the law and the covenant. For this reason, the Romans, while they're still olives, they're wild olives. But they're still Israelites under the promises. Romans 11:19. Now you will say those branches have been broken off in order that I would be grafted in. In other words, the dispersion of Israel has no reconciliation without the death of Christ. Verse 20. Correct. In disbelief they were broken off, and you in faith stand. Be not proud, but reverent. Indeed, if God spared not the natural branches... Perhaps you may not be spared. Those Israelites, the true Israelites, who continue to reject Christ, ended up mixing in with Edomites, ended up mixing in with all the races that the Edomites later mixed in with, wherever the Jews had traveled, ended up being excluded from the empire once it turned to Christianity. Verse 22, Behold then the goodness and severity of Yahweh, certainly upon those who have fallen severity, but the goodness of Yahweh upon you, if then you abide in that goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. 
failing and falling into trials of fire in this life. Moreover, they also, if they do not remain in disbelief, shall be grafted in. Indeed, Yahweh is able to graft them in anew. All Israel shall be saved. If you from out of a naturally wild olive tree had been cut off, and contrary to nature had been grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more can those natural ones be grafted into their own olive tree? But this analogy is only made to the Romans. One of those nations descended from Abraham's seed. And the Romans are the wild olive tree only because they never had the laws and the prophets. In chapters 1 and chapters 2 of Romans, Paul proves that the Romans are Israelites. We see the Judeans, the believing Judeans, lost their identity as Judeans. The disbelieving Judeans, who continued to reject Christ, who maintain their identity as Judeans by necessity, were later mixed up with the Edomites. They were broken off. They were broken out of the kingdom of Yahweh. They suffered the trials of this life because all of their offspring would have been ultimately bastardized like the rest of the Edomite Jews. They'll be in a resurrection. They may not like being in a resurrection. They may not be happy with their position. As Daniel says in verse 12, some men awake to everlasting glory and some men awaken to everlasting shame. And for a sign speaking in opposition, let me repeat the passage from Luke. Behold, he is sent for a fall and for a restoration of many in Israel and for a sign speaking in opposition. The King James Version has it, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Other versions, the ASC and the NAS, also retain that sense. Somehow, the verb, anti-legomenon, is treated as a passive participle by all of those translations. And for a sign which shall be spoken against would be a passive participle. But in fact, the verb is an accusative singular present medium participle. Therefore, in the Christian New Testament, it is the sign which is doing the speaking. That is the proper interpretation of a medium voice verb. The crucifixion of Christ is seen as having convicted his enemies. Christ crucified and resurrected is the sign speaking in opposition to his enemies. That would be a proper interpretation of the Greek of that passage. Luke 2, verse 36. Then there was Anna, a prophetess, a daughter of Phanuel, from the tribe of Asher. She was advanced greatly in age, living with a husband for seven years from her maidenhood. And she is a widow for as long as 84 years, who did not depart from the temple 
serving with fasting and in supplication day and night. And at that hour, standing nearby, she confessed to Yahweh and spoke concerning him to all those awaiting redemption in Jerusalem. The end of verse 36 here, with the beginning of verse 37, may be read literally that she was advanced in many days, living with a husband seven years from her maidenhood, and she is a widow of the 84 years. The traditional age for marriage for a woman was no younger than 16. Although a promise in marriage to be profitable could be made much sooner. If Anna was 16 when she lost her virginity, the earliest customary age, then she became a widow at 23. And so here, she is 107 years old. Now, the Codex Sinaiticus has 74 years that she's a widow rather than 84. So perhaps she's only 97 years old here. Reading 84 years, as most of the manuscripts do, Anna would have been born around 110 B.C. The word parthenos is maidenhood in the text, and it may have been read virginity from the time of her virginity. Seven years from her virginity, she lived with a husband. As it is evident in the Gospels, many of the people of Judea were awaiting a Messiah at this very time, as we have seen also. Simeon, in Luke 2.25, was expecting the consolation of Israel, that comfort which Yahweh promised in the Old Testament, as I quoted several places in the Psalms and in Isaiah. Daniel's 70-week prophecy found in Daniel 9, chapters 24 through 27, must have been understood in some degree, and there was a messianic expectation throughout the region at this time. As the woman in the well, the woman at the well in Samaria also displayed, which is recorded at John 4.25, where she said that, I know that Messiah comes, and when he comes, he will teach us all things. Yet it is obvious that Daniel chapter 9 was not fully understood, since Daniel chapter 9 prophecies that the Messiah shall be cut off. And that was not on the minds of the people who rather expected him to become their temporal ruler at that time. And we see that in Mark 15:43, in Luke 19:38, in Acts 1:6, the people wanted to take him and make him king, even after the resurrection in Acts 1:6, and before his ascension, we see that the apostles asked him if he would deliver the kingdom to Israel at this time. It is quite plausible. So there was great disappointment among many people that that didn't happen with the first advent of Christ. It is quite plausible that Israelites of the tribe of Asher remained in Palestine and were cognizant of their identity until this time. There are firm, solid historical reasons for that. We will find them out now. While most of the Israelites, including Judah and Benjamin, most of Judah and Benjamin, were taken away by the Assyrians 
between 741 and 676 BC. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, along with the mainland city of Tyre, were taken away by the Babylonians. The island city of Tyre remained intact all throughout the deportations and all throughout the Persian period. It remained intact right up to the time of Alexander the Great. And it can be demonstrated from Scripture that the island city of Tyre belonged to and was inhabited by members of the tribe of Asher. The Phoenicians of Tyre were Israelites of Asher, primarily. It is more than evident in the Old Testament that the tribe of Asher inhabited Tyre and the coasts of what the Greeks called Phoenicia. They were the principal people called Phoenicians in Greek literature. From Herodotus and other sources, it is evident that the Phoenicians of Tyre, the island city, prospered well during the Persian period and had every opportunity to spread themselves back to the mainland before Alexander built the mole out to the island and destroyed it circa 330 B.C. for not capitulating to him. While it is obvious that Phoenicia became a mere geographical distinction and that many Canaanites of the region were later called Phoenicians by the Greeks, we see that people of the tribe of Asher, because the, main, the island city of Tyre was not destroyed until 330 B.C., people of the tribe of Asher may well have propagated and done very well for themselves during this period and multiplied and moved back to the mainland. So we have Anna for the tribe of Asher. Luke 2.39, and as they completed all the things according to the law of Yahweh, they returned into Galilee to the city Nazareth. And the child grew and was strengthened, being filled with wisdom, and the favor of Yahweh was with him. The Codex Messiah appends to the end of verse 39 the words, just as it was spoken through the prophet that he would be called a Nazarene, Nazarene, or a Nazarene, for which see Matthew 2.23. Verse 41, And his parents had gone each year to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. All the men of Israel were commanded to appear before Yahweh on three of the yearly feasts. This command is in Exodus chapter 23, verses 14 through 17, and it's also in Deuteronomy 16.16, and I will quote that verse from the King James Version. Three times in a year shall all the males appear before Yahweh thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the Feast of Unleavened Bread and in the Feast of Weeks, which is known as Pentecost today, and in the Feast of Tabernacles. And they shall not appear before Yahweh empty. This command was commanded in the law only of all the men of Israel. And therefore, of the women, it was more or less voluntary 
and we shall see evidence of this with Hannah, the mother of Samuel. And I will quote from 1 Samuel chapter 1, from verse 20. Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come, after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son, and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of Yahweh. And the man, Elkanah, and all his house, went up to offer unto Yahweh the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah went not up, for she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him, that he may appear before the Lord, and there abide forever. So Hannah chose not to go to Jerusalem on a Passover. Luke 2.42, And when he attained 12 years of age, upon their going up according to the custom of the feast, Mary going with Joseph voluntarily, as all the women did, and having fulfilled the days, upon their returning, the child Yahshua had stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents knew it not, but they believed him to be among the travelers. Having gone a day's journey, then they sought him among the kinsmen and acquaintances, and not finding him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. And after three days passed, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers and listening to them and questioning them. And all those hearing him were amazed by his intelligence and replies. And seeing him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Child, why have you done this to us? Behold, your father and I, travailing, have sought you. And he said to them, Why have you sought me? Do you not know that it is necessary for me to be engaged in the matters of my father? And literally that phrase means for me to be in the things of my father. We see an episode here where Christ as a child desired to act before his appointed time. This, I am persuaded, is an example for us that we all want to act before our appointed time. We all want to act on our own time. However, our Father in Heaven has his own plan, and that is the plan that shall and must prevail. Christ realized this, and therefore knowing that the time was not yet, he relented, and we see that he was keeping himself subject to them. The phrase indicates that he already had the ability not to be subject to them, even at 12 years of age, but that he knew it was better to await the proper time, and therefore it was meet for him to remain subject to his parents, even though he desired to act already. There is a lesson in that humility and patience for all of us today. And they did not understand the words which he had spoken to them. His parents must have realized that the young Yahshua was indeed an extraordinary child. But they obviously did not understand how that would impact the life that they would have 
in raising him. Verse 51. And he descended with them and went unto Nazareth, and he was keeping himself subject to them. And his mother maintained all of these words in her heart. His mother maintained all of these words in her heart is how these accounts were preserved so that Luke could make a compilation of them later. Verse 52. And Yahshua advanced in wisdom and stature and in favor before Yahweh and man. The British Israel interpreters love to make much about the missing years in the life of Christ. The 18 years in the gospel between this very event, which Luke has described, and his baptism by John at the age of 30. They usually assert that because John did not recognize Christ as his cousin when Christ first came to him, that therein lies the proof that Christ must have been in Britain during those years. This is all quite creative. And once upon a time, I was actually convinced of it myself. But in the end, there is no actual proof that Christ ever left Palestine. None. Here Luke infers that Christ came of age in Nazareth, where he states that Yahweh, that Yahshua descended with them and went to Nazareth and was keeping himself subject to them, and where he then states that he advanced in wisdom and in stature and in favor before God and men. It is just as easily explained why, and it's explained by Luke, why John the Baptist did not recognize Christ as his own cousin. In Luke chapter 1, verse 80, it says this of John the Baptist after he was born. And the child grew and was strengthened in spirit and was in the wilderness until the day of his manifestation to Israel. John the Baptist was in the wilderness until the day of his manifestation to Israel. John the Baptist was in the wilderness for 30 years until he began his ministry. In the wilderness, he evidently was not in Nazareth, and he did not see the Christ until he was to baptize him in the Jordan many years later. It's that simple. Thank you for listening tonight. Praise Yahweh. I'll be here tomorrow night with Mark Downey, and we're going to bash the church. That might be fun. Good night.